Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, we bring you the latest names on Pep Guardiola's Transfer Window shopping list, including an experienced schemer from his Barcelona days and a top-class defensive screener from Atletico Madrid, as Manchester City attempt to stop a rot that has seen the Premier League title advantage shift to Merseyside. It's been a year since Virgil van Dijk signed for Liverpool in a huge deal and what a period it has been for the Dutch defensive colossus. We assess what he's brought to his team and how the transfer itself has come to define all that is good about Jurgen Klopp's recruitment policy. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has had a storming start to his caretaker role at Manchester United with eight goals and two victories so far. But is all as it seems? We look at the Norwegian's record and ask whether or not the legendary striker is the right man for United on a permanent basis. Well, after a terrific start, Manchester City now sit in third place, seven points behind a rampant and so far unbeaten Liverpool. Regular transfer window listeners will know that Pep Guardiola has long been in the market for midfield recruits. And Ian, you have some news regarding two potential January signings. Yeah, Johnny, it's become very um, uh, visible that uh, they miss Fernandinho uh, when he plays. I think um, for all the wonderful uh, and pretty football that Manchester City play, uh, Fernandinho is the oil in the engine which allows uh, everyone else to move forward at such pace uh, with skill in the final third and then create goals and obviously goal opportunities. And uh, his absence from the team has um, proven to be uh, obviously very detrimental to City's um, title chances in terms of their last uh, two or three games. They've lost three and four now, as we know. Um, And as we've spoken about in the Transfer Window podcast in the last two or three weeks, City, um, under the threat of a transfer ban from FIFA uh, and also under the threat of... um, punitive measures from UEFA for FFP will invest in the January window. Now, they will do that, and what they'll do is they, they're already in talks with Chelsea about the potential to either loan or buy Cesc Fabregas, um, someone who Pep Guardiola obviously worked with extensively at uh, Barcelona. Uh, and while he's not quite a Fernandinho replica in terms of the way he plays, he's a very experienced player, He's 31, who can play that role if, he, if need be, and that's obviously how he'll be brought in. A uh, little bit of um, resonance of Frank Lampard going to City from Chelsea. Again, uh, when he was out of contract, uh, Fabregas in this case is not out of contract, but would be very cheap 
in terms of um, a loan or a transfer fee. However, I am also told that they have inquired to Atletico Madrid about Thomas Partey, who for me is one of the most exciting and most effective holding midfielders in European football at this moment in time. He would be my choice um, if I were Pep Guardiola in terms of uh, bringing someone in going forward. And remember that City were very much in the market for Fred, the Brazil midfielder who signed for Manchester United in the summer. Um, so this is not a, a position which Guardiola is just suddenly waking up to in terms of it being deficient. He's, he's been looking at this for a year now or more. And um, unusually, City have not really responded or reacted properly to this. Uh, however, I, I do believe that the um, losses to Crystal Palace, Leicester City and Chelsea uh, and the fact that they're trailing Liverpool and Tottenham Hotspur at the top of the uh, Premier League means that they will act and act quickly in January. Whether or not it comes um, uh, in time, and I doubt it very, very much that it will, for the uh, massive game at the Etihad against Liverpool on January 3rd. I think that's just being too hopeful in terms of Manchester City's eyes. But there will be transfer business done in January for midfield. Um, and Guardiola needs and knows that he must, must recruit in that area. Yeah, this, this position is of fundamental importance to Guardiola and Manchester City's uh, the rest of their season. Um, as you say, Ian, uh, Guardiola has been trying to get City to uh, sign a high-quality backup to Fernandinho in that number six role um, for over a year now. Uh, they tried hard to get Fred from Shakhtar Donetsk last January, uh, but weren't prepared to pay the release clause at that point. Shakhtar didn't want to sell the player, although he was ready to come to Manchester City, so they missed then. They missed again in the summer, which I think there's an element of... Um, Abu Dhabi saying uh, we spent a lot on this team last year. Um, we're going to give you Riyad Mahrez as a, an additional attacker. Um, it should be enough for this season. And um, and it's proved not to be mainly because Fernandinho at his age in his 30s after um, being a fundamental, one of the fundamental players in a, in a squad that was not rotated much by Guardiola. Um, and had a, a, a crucial job to do in his system in, in terms of stopping counter-attacks at source, um, being the guy who can get away, seems to have a magical touch getting away with fouls um, with, that referees would book other players for, um, can get two or three of them in a game with, without being booked, which obviously allows them to carry on fouling. Um, they haven't found someone to cover for him They've tried to use Elke Gundogan in that position the last two games against uh, Palace and Leicester City, and he's he's come up badly wanting. In fact, was uh, directly responsible for um, the, bad, the poor defensive header that allowed Andrus Townsend to score his, his great goal against City um, a week ago. And um, they, it's clear they need to do something there. I think the, the guys you mentioned are options. I think um, Guardiola would prefer to go um, for a far more expensive buy. Um, they've they've inquired about Frankie de Jong from Ajax, who um, ticks a lot of boxes, but is wanted by Barcelona, who um, Paris Saint-Germain have already made an offer to Ajax for. 
Um, they've also inquired about um, Tange Ndombele at Lyon, who's not so much a number six, more like, more suited to the, the, the number eight position. You maybe see him as a as a replacement for Gundogan, ironically, rather than um, rather than the backup to Fernandinho. And also um, Jose M. Oar, um, his teammate at Lyon, who who would be more suited to that role. They're, they're all options. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if they're prepared to go down the route of one of those top signings who are essentially priced in the, the 100 million euro um, area by the clubs who own them because they they that's kind of become the standard pricing for any talent that's that, that's wanted by PSG, Man City, Man United, Barca these days. Um, and the and they're hopeful of getting that from one of those clubs. Interesting to see if Manchester City prepared to put that kind of money down at a period in which they're under, you know, severe scrutiny from UEFA and the Premier League over um, their past financial fair play um, transgressions. Um, it's an interesting report recently that the Premier League and the and UEFA were collaborating in terms of information sharing on that um, check over how how um, Manchester City may have um, broken the rules by uh, misreporting their spending and their sponsorship revenue uh, in past years. So with that transfer ban in sight and with um, a desperate need to sort out their season, will they go and do that and possibly even go for a left back as well? Because I think they've been, they've been unfortunate in that that squad is the strongest squad the Premier League's ever seen. Um, essentially has at least two players in every position, but the two positions in which you would say they're questionable, left back and that holding midfield role are the two that they've got um, medium to long-term injuries in at the moment and the two injuries that have really hurt them in recent games and allowed uh, Liverpool to, to pull out that substantial lead in the, in the Premier League. I think the other thing, Duncan, for me, um, with regards to Manchester City and um, the way that things have I guess transpired in the last three weeks or so. Um, I think Pep Guardiola took a, a, a bit of a risk, a bit of a punt, when not signing uh, a striker in the summer window. He, we know that he doesn't trust Sergio Aguero to a point because of the way that their relationship has been in his time there. Gabriel Jesus, who is a wonderful talent, but not the finished article in terms of being a striker. And I just reckon that if they had gone into the market in, in the summer and signed someone who could put a bit of pressure on both those players, just doesn't have to doesn't need to be a starter necessarily a starting striker, but someone who would be able to just, you know, in training at least and then in the odd game, odd appearance, um, came through and, and said, you know what, if you don't perform then I'm 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 on your shoulder here and I'm waiting to get in there and and score goals um, because I think that's something which uh, they've lacked. Uh, I also think that the deployment of John Stones as the holding midfielder um, was a mistake. Um, this is a player who, uh, as we've said a few times before, always looks to have a mistake in him with regards to giving possession away easily or cheaply and therefore allowing opposition to get in and, and create chances. And the fact that he was played in the holding midfielder role 
um, shows, I think, you know, a club of Manchester City stature and the fact that they have effectively, um, you know, the, the, the greatest um, of all uh, benefactors in Abu Dhabi, that you should not be playing John Stones in all the midfield role. There should be someone else to play there. And I agree with you, Duncan, Fabian Delft is, can be effective at left back, but he's not a left back. And so these things have been shown to be um, a weakness in Manchester City. And, and one of the other things which has been evident um, since the start of the season, but mo- again, much more um, evident recently, is that uh, not since 04, 05, and 05, 06, under Jose Mourinho, has a team successfully defended the Premier League title. And um, City are struggling a bit. And Pep has even made reference to that to himself. He said, we are um, struggling to... Uh, live up to the standards that we set last season where they broke all sorts of records including the points total for Premier League winners um, the time they won the Premier League the amount of goals scored and everything else and you know it is there was a mental switch with players where when they win a title like the Premier League where they just say do you know what you know we've got it now we've sorted this and we know what we have to do next season and that's not the case and I do think that City's recruitment uh, policy last summer now is beginning to backfire on them. They didn't improve the squad enough to um, make it uh, the competition between for places enough, and therefore the hunger and the ambition uh, some it can dissipate very quickly. And I, I do believe that um, Guardiola is suffering from that now in terms of his playing squad. So it's going to be very, very interesting indeed to see how they respond to Liverpool going seven points clear at the top. Because for me, Liverpool now are the team to beat. Uh, Always up because they they are displaying all the things that City aren't. Yeah, I think think Aguero has a lot more of Guardiola's faith than he had at any point in the time they've been working together at Manchester City. But it is the case that both Aguero and Gabriel Jesus are injury-prone. Um, so you quite often either can't field one of them or only has, you know, he only has one available and, and that one can struggle to play a whole game. We saw him use Raheem Sterling against Chelsea as a number nine and actually blunted um, his best attacking weapon by using him there. Definitely wasn't a success and, and probably contributed to them losing that game, which is the start of this, this bad run. I think there's an important element in, in the way Guardiola runs teams and the way he manages teams in that they are extremely dependent on physical effort. Um, the way they push so many, many players forward requires a high press against opponents as soon as they get the ball. And that requires a lot of pre- players to do a lot of running in every game they play. Um, and not only is that physically demanding, and Guardiola had, did not rotate his team a lot last season. He tended to stick with the, the, the few players in his squad that he trusted. He hasn't rotated them a great deal this season. So not only physically demanding, it's mentally demanding because Guardiola is always on top of them in terms of you must do this, you, you must maintain the standards, not just in the games, but in training sessions. And it, there is a, a pattern. If you, if you talk to guys who've played with him at Bayern Munich, you talk to people who played with him at Barcelona, they will say that he is 
a hard coach to work under, not because he isn't very good and not because they don't learn a lot of them. Both of those things happen. But after a while, it becomes almost too much. And like you say, if you're winning, if, you have, if you've won the title uh, and you won it comfortably, which also tends to be a pattern um, with Guardiola in terms of he either wins the title comfortably or doesn't win, um, that's what's happened the last five years with them, then the, the tendency is going to be to slack off after you've won the title and you think, OK, we reached that standard last season and we reached it by a country mile, so therefore probably we don't need to put as much effort in this season, we'll be fine. Um, and I, I think that is probably the biggest question mark about this Manchester City team in terms of whether they can recover against Liverpool having seeded this degree of advantage halfway through the season. Um, a Guardiola team hasn't won a title from behind since Barcelona. Um, Bayern Munich had the title finished by spring. Manchester City had the title finished by spring. Both those teams, their Champions League campaigns, hit a rock towards the end of the season. And part of it was about physical and mental fatigue. And now they can't afford to hit that rock. Um, I, I don't think there's any way we'll, we'll see this um, Manchester City overcoming Liverpool's lead and having the title put to, put to bed um, March, April in the way that um, Guardiola's title winners have done recently. So this is going to be the most testing season his players have been put through for a long time. And also importantly that he's been put through and he's not He's, he's kind of a fragile individual. He's an individual who's susceptible to self-doubt. If you, if you read the book Pep Cop Confidential, which is an excellent analysis of his first season at Bayern Munich where the author was allowed basically carte blanche behind the scene access and told to write whatever he wants, that there's a recurrent theme of Pep doubting himself, Pep asking questions of himself, um, Pep being unsure whether he was going about things the right way until the results started to come for, for for him. And now he's the results have gone against him and he's got those questions to answer against a team which is flying on confidence at the moment and um, doesn't seem to have a great deal of weaknesses, seems to be defensively very solid, um, able to score goals from all over the pitch uh, and will be playing Manchester City again um, next week. Uh, and has the opportunity to really open up a huge gap over them if they if they win that match, as, uh, in addition uh, to their unbeaten record so far this season. Ian, it's been a year to the day since Virgil van Dijk signed for Liverpool in a £75 million deal that many felt was a bit on the expensive side. But if you look at Liverpool's form this season, they've only lost seven goals in 19 games. And I wonder, has City's reluctance to push that boat out for the player come back to bite them? I think it's important, um, Johnny, to think about, uh, first of all, the money um, that Liverpool paid for a guy who was essentially untried at the highest level. He did play Champions League with Celtic, but at Southampton, you know, he was an outstanding player in a relatively, you know, average team. Um so what Southampton, uh, sorry, what Liverpool bought for nearly eighty million pounds was potential, and an effect was that he could he could actually become something which he 
wasn't at that point in time. So um, the fact that you look at the table now and that um, Liverpool have conceded less goals than anyone else in the Premier League, seven goals in 19 <coughs> games. They have 11 clean sheets in 19 games. No Liverpool team in the past 20 years have those statistics to their name. So um, it's fairly obvious that Virgil van Dijk's made a massive difference to Liverpool in terms of their defensive, um, not just potential, but the, the, the fact that they have uh, performed um, incredibly well this season. Um, more than that, um, you speak to, I spoke to Glenn Murray, who is a very experienced striker in the Premier League. And he said to me that Van Dijk is the quintessential centre half. He's, you know, he said he does everything right. He's physically strong. He is someone who um, comes up on your, your shoulder without you even realising he's there. He is an, a player who uh, can block. He can play out from the back. He's good with his head, he's good with his feet. So all these things are incredibly um, influential in terms of Liverpool's progression this season. And of course, we shouldn't forget as well that Alisson Becker, the goalkeeper, um, has also played a massive part in this. And um, But with, with Van Dijk, it's clear that um, he inspires people around him and he's been a catalyst to the fact that they have achieved these remarkable statistics in terms of clean sheets and um, goals conceded. Um, one of the things that I think if you watch Liverpool regularly that you'll notice with um, Van Dijk is that um, he often allows other players, he delegates, he allows other players to, like Matip, um, like Lovren, like Gomez. What he'll do is, is he will say to them, you go in front of me and you mark the player or you zonally mark the space and I'm telling you that I'm behind you, therefore you, I am your insurance policy. So if anything happens, it go, anything goes wrong, then I'm the person who's going to clean up the mess. And I think that has been a massive difference to Liverpool as well, defensively, because beforehand they didn't have that insurance policy, they didn't have that measure of control, of command that Van Dijk brings. Um, lots and lots of people are talking about Van Dijk as the best defender in the world. That it's far too early for that, and we cannot have uh, a conversation about that because he's not won a, a title yet. He's not won. A, he's not won a trophy. But what he has done is um, galvanised and made Liverpool a different kind of team. Because this time last year, Liverpool were more like Manchester City in terms of they had to score more goals than their opponents, and now it's the opposite. Manchester City are a team who are not defending well and have to score more goals than their opponents. Whereas Liverpool, can, they can eke out and they can close down a one 0 or they can go one 0 up and you know gets into the last five ten minutes of a game, um, and then they can score that decisive winning goal, which makes them uh, the team that gets three points. So yeah, it, it, it you know we cannot cannot underestimate. 
the effect that Van Dijk has had on Liverpool. Just quickly on that, Ian, do you think City will now regret not pushing the button on Van Dijk? It's a a hard one, Johnny, because they they, they spent more than £100 million on Laporte and and John Stones, whom I I have been very full of praise for in in this current season. Um, We spoke a couple of months ago about how Mourinho failed to improve uh, Lindelof and Bailly, whereas um, Guardiola had managed to get the best out of Laporte and Stones. And that was the case up until, I guess, what, 7th of December. Now City look fragile at the back, but that's partly because I think Fernandinho's absence, and we've spoken about that in the first part of this podcast. Um, With regards to Van Dijk, Liverpool was a centre-half waiting to happen, in my opinion. Um, You've had Carriker, Hippia in those successful eras where you had a commanding centre-half who told everyone else their job and made sure that they did it. Um, And I think there's been a vacuum at Anfield with regards to um, that kind of player at the back. And Van Dijk definitely has filled that vacuum. I think um, if you look at the difference between Liverpool this season and last season, Liverpool are seven wins better off and they've got 16 goals less conceded. That's not purely because of Virgil van Dijk, clearly, um, because they've also added a top goalkeeper who it's very obvious the games in which he has uh, turned draws into wins or uh, defeats into draws with his personal intervention. They've also added two very high-quality midfielders in Naby Keita and Fabinho. Fabinho is becoming more of an influence now he's, he's settled in, settling in into English football. Um, so they've strengthened in key areas in front of the defence, the leader of the defence, a guy who, as Ian points out, elicits superior performances from someone like Joe Gomez, who's still learning as a centre-back, but has all the natural ability to become a top centre-back. When you put someone in beside him who can tell him where to be and give him an assurance that he'll be protected if he makes a mistake, that automatically brings a better performance from Gomez, from Alexander-Arnold, allows Robertson to push further up the pitch. So you get all those benefits from that also and all the benefits from having a better goalkeeper. In terms of what would have happened, I think, and I think this is far more important, if Manchester City had not balked at the asking price Southampton put up for Van Dijk um, and had not balked at the wages that Van Dijk was asking for and had signed him, I don't think there's any chance that Liverpool would be top of the league at present. Um, for example, I, I don't think this would have happened if Liverpool had taken Laporte um, because they hadn't got Van Dijk. There's no way Laporte would have been able to produce what Van Dijk has done for Liverpool, slotted into that defence. But by the same token, if you put Van Dijk into the Manchester City defence, I think he's far more capable of handling the difficulties that they're having um, with Fernandinho being out than Laporte and John Stones are, who remember are both still very young centre-backs, both chosen more for their um, creative abilities, more for their their passing on the ball than they are as 
pure defenders. And, you know, Laporte's impressed a lot of people this season, but I think one of the things that's impressed is, are his recovery tackles. He's, he's, he's a guy who is capable of nicking the ball back after he's been beaten by a forward. Actually, you don't want to see your centre-backs doing that very often. That's a sign that they've got out of position and, and they're having to save themselves uh, with pace or with, a, with an athletic intervention. The best centre-backs, as, as Ian talks about Van Dijk's quality, they win the ball before the, the striker's even aware they're there. Um, and they, and they, they push the strikers into positions where they're not going to get the ball. So I think the Premier League got lucky that Manchester City didn't decide to buy Van Dijk because if they had, um, I think they would they would definitely wouldn't be behind Liverpool and they'd probably be fairly comfortably ahead this season and, and able to deal with the, the physical and mental fatigue that's accumulated from last season. And what about in terms of just getting the deal over the line? Such an enormous deal at the time. People raised their eyebrows, Duncan, and said, well, £75 million. Pounds or... That seems like an awful lot of money for a centre-half from Southampton. Is that kind of direct action on a player that you need being vindicated from the biggest clubs? Absolutely, and that, that's the difference, I think, in Liverpool's recruitment. Um, that's where they they have moved ahead of... Manchester United, that's where they've moved ahead of Chelsea and that's where they moved ahead of Tottenham and Tottenham don't have that firepower. Um, those other two clubs do have have had comparable firepower, particularly Manchester United. Manchester United have spent more than Liverpool. Um, certainly if you net the spending, they've spent more than Liverpool. But Liverpool have been surgical. It's, you know, we, need a, we need a top centre-back. This is the guy we want. Uh, we made a mess of it in the summer because Jurgen Klopp got caught um, uh, meeting him in person before he had permission from the club to do it, we, and we had to back off. We'll go for him again in January. We'll pay the penalty Southampton are going to levy on us to do that, and we'll give him. We'll make him the best paid centre back in the Premier League because we think he's the right guy. Um, midfielder, we want Naby Keita. We'll wait an entire year and pay a huge transfer fee for. Him because he think, we think he's the right man for the position. Fabinho, lots of clubs looking at him, almost joined Paris Saint-Germain when, uh, when Neymar went to Paris Saint-Germain but got stopped because, um, because they were getting pulled up in FFP and it would be too embarrassing to take both of the, those players from the direct rivals. We know PSG are still in from, we know other clubs are interested. We're going to have to convince him early, so we do that. And they, and they got that deal in place very, very early on last season and ready to go um, and, and be announced, I think, just after the, the Champions League final. And goalkeeper, obviously needed a goalkeeper badly. Um, Alison Becker was a target for, uh, or Real Madrid were interested, but Chelsea in particular were trying to get them. And they, again, convinced the player, paid the, the money that Roma wanted, paid the wages, got the player they wanted. So they're, they're spending a huge amount by their own standards, by anyone's standards apart from basically Manchester City, uh, in terms of total spend, albeit they raised money from Philip Coutinho, so that offsets it to a degree. But they're spending huge amounts of money, but they're doing it every time. They're Recently, they're having a hit. Um, and, you know, I was, I was looking at Liverpool's squad for, at this window and thinking, where... 
would they want to reinforce? And I actually don't think there is a, a buy for them to make uh, in this January window. I think their first team is operating so well and it's so strong. They're, they're better off standing where they are and the only real things they're looking for is backup, which is an incredible place for them to be compared to where Liverpool were two, just two or three seasons ago. And also, Johnny, our transfer podcast window family will know that often Duncan and I and you speak about the big no value in the January window and that it's a very difficult time to buy um, or even sell players. But Virgil van Dijk was bought, as you pointed out at the beginning of this part of the conversation, a, a year ago. Um, and that the, the five months he was given to settle into the team uh, last season have been absolutely significant with regards to the form that he's now producing in this 2018-2019 season. Um, and so he has been the exception up to the rule uh, in terms of you spend that, that money in January, but what you get is a complete player starting a full his first full season, 2018-2019. Uh, and performing to his optimum um, uh, potential. And that has been a, a huge, huge bonus for Liverpool. We've talked about first think, and... Sorry, Jay, I just, Jay, I just want one additional point. I think I'm right in saying he is the most expensive January window buy by a Premier League club. He is, Duncan. Yeah, that's and correct, yeah. if he carries on the way he is, he will prove to be probably the best January window signing, um, Except, of course, which, which is quite a thing because the biggest transfers quite often don't prove to be the most successful ones. So again, that's testimony to what a good job Liverpool are, have been doing in the transfer market. The only big one was uh, Coutinho to Barcelona, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm saying is that you can't argue that Coutinho has been a better signing for Barcelona than Van Dijk has been. For Liverpool, I think that's fairly obvious. Certainly at this stage, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've talked about first and third there, guys. Uh, Ian, Tottenham haven't even come on this radar yet. Is that no. a little bit unfair, given how well they're playing at the moment? Well. Or is it just realistic? I think it's realistic. I think um, that recent um, performances and results have been outstanding and... Um, very, very um, eye-catching uh, in terms of the way they beat Bournemouth and obviously the 6-2 against Everton. And remember, this is a club who um, did no business in the summer window and who are unlikely to do any business in the January window. However, um, two things worry me about Tottenham. Uh, the first is that... Um, I think 1 to 11, they're very good, but 1 to 14, 15, they're not great. Um, I do think that Maurizio Pochettino has a lot of faith in younger players like Harry Winks and Kyle Walker Peters, etc., who have come through and played well in the first team in recent weeks, but that does not make a Premier League winning team. The second um, aspect of this is uh, that Christian Eriksen's contract which is um, expires in 18 months time that they have 
tried and failed to open negotiations with Ericsson's people um, because they know uh, that Ericsson is wanted and is valued by Barcelona and Real Madrid with regards to um, the way that he is playing right now and the possibility of the way that he could play in their team and their systems and also the fact that his current wages are way below what they're willing to pay. So, um, well, I think that Ericsson's a player who values his football and his starting position over um, any kind of financial gain. Uh, it would be very difficult for Ericsson to turn down a move to somewhere like Madrid or Barcelona, obviously, as it is for any player. Uh, and also the the um, the contract that they would offer. So, uh, also um, Hoyman's son going to the Asian uh, Cup for the, the next three and a half weeks is going to um, give them less options up front. So, um, I agree with you that it's, it's wrong to discount Tottenham as if they weren't there, but they're second place right now um, above Manchester City. However, I do believe that there are problems on the horizon for Tottenham with regards to um, Ericsson, obviously got this ongoing stadium uh, fiasco as well, but also, um, yeah, they, they, need to, they need to prove that their ambition is as big as their stadium, as their managers, and they need to act on that and show everyone that they're willing to do that. Uh, and I'm just not sure that right now Tottenham Hotspur uh, the way they're managed is um, say are capable of um, matching that ambition because they are conservative in their approach with regards to transfers in a way that we've spoken about that Liverpool have become much more progressive. So uh, I, I, they've got potential, huge potential. They need to now prove that they're willing to invest in it as well. I think Tottenham have got a very good first team. I think if you look two or three years ago, they had the best first team in the Premier League. I think their opportunity to win the Premier League was the year Leicester won it. Um, I can't see them doing it this season, no matter how good they are at present. Um, Maurizio Pochettino trains his team hard through the year and, they, and as a result, they tend to be in good condition at this time of year. But um, it hits them towards the end of the season. And I would expect results to drop off then if they don't drop off in this um, this festive period. Because I mean, one thing we didn't note with Liverpool and Manchester City is that because Manchester City are still in the League Cup, um, they could be playing up to four games more than Liverpool across this festive season um, in, the, in the space of about 65 days. And Tottenham have the same problem there. Um, obviously, it depends whether the whether they reach the final obviously depends uh, whether all of these teams go through in the in the FA Cup. But essentially, Liverpool, on top of their points advantage, have an advantage of playing less games in the in the most difficult periods of the season, and which I'd expect them to use um, to cement this lead. Um, and I, I honestly, I think at this stage, it is Liverpool's year. Um, and it's up to them uh, whether they want to win the league. 
this is the best chance they've had of winning the Premier League ever. Um, and I think the only way they don't win it is if they can't handle the pressure of being ahead. Um, or they get a serious injury to one or two of their key players, which really sets them back. But um, they are absolutely in pole position at present to, to win the, the title. Duncan's audition for the Anfield Rap podcast is going swimmingly there. So well, I shall... I, I, I think historic um, comments by Duncan will cut against him. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has to be said that this is the first time I've predicted Liverpool to win the title on this uh, podcast. So. Right. Or, or anything, Duncan. Indeed. <laughs> right, we'll move on to a team that we have talked a lot about, but who are not in the title race, and that is Manchester United. Bit of an upward turn in terms of their results and performances since Ole Gunnar Solskjaer came in. That's uh, eight goals and two wins in two games. Duncan, does this prove that uh, Jose Mourinho should have been bulleted earlier? Well, as we mentioned in the podcast um, and the day that Mourinho was sacked, um, there was a, a kind of tactical timing to the sacking in that uh, the Glazers, Ed Woodward, knew that they had five relatively easy games uh, coming up, so the opportunity for you know a a nice turnaround with the new manager coming in, and b the ability to say, oh look, um, it was all the manager's fault. When uh, we got rid of them, these players are great again. Um, yes, they they've won they won convincingly at Cardiff, uh, another good result at Huddersfield. Um, I think if you, uh, which is great, but I think if you scratch beneath the surface, um, they're still big questions to be answered about the team. Um, you're watching the Huddersfield game. They were again weak from set pieces, which is a problem they've had you know, almost throughout the Mourinho um, era as manager, bizarrely enough, because that's something he's always prided himself as a manager in, which I think would tell you, suggests that it's a, it's a problem with the players, that it, that, that sustains itself over, over the next change of manager. Um, against Huddersfield, uh, Huddersfield could have gone one nil up from a throw-in that uh, that Paul Pogba missed in the air. They had another uh, set-piece chance uh, at the start of the second half where De Gea saved them with with, um, with a, a, a great uh, reaction save. Again, Pogba missing uh, defensively at set-piece, which is again a, a, a long-standing partner of Manchester United, and eventually conceded their goal from another set-piece. So some of the fundamentals are still missing. Um, the Cardiff game couldn't have had a better start. Score was their first shot and goal, um, 25-yard free kick. And score again from 25 yards with their second shot and goal, takes a deflection. Uh, and then, you know, any team 2-0 up uh, should be looking fairly comfortable and probably not a great surprise that they, they ran away and, and scored so many goals. The, the idea which some people were, were putting forward that, it was A, a better performance than any under the previous manager, and B, the best performance since Sir Alex Ferguson left the club, um, I think was somewhat overdone when you consider the opposition uh, and the way in which the, the victory came about with those you know first two chances going in the net. I think um, Solskjaer's made some interesting changes. He um, obviously told the players uh, to run more, and he said after his first press conference that he said, uh, you know, Manchester United 
team. She'd never been outrun by their opponents and got that response and that they did out, outrun the opposition for only the, the second time in the in the Premier League this season. Um, but, you know, that that's quite an easy game to make as a new manager coming in. Uh, look, lads, I want you to run more um, than you were before, especially when you've got players like Pogba who'd been dropped out of the side and who's whose distance covered for the season had dropped over his previous seasons. Not, I, I can assure you, because Mourinho had told him to run less, but because he wasn't prepared to run for the manager during the season. Um, he changed the way that they bring the ball out from defence and uh, was actually using uh, using the wingers to come back and meet the defenders and, and then projecting the midfielders forward beyond the midfield line, which worked very successfully against Cardiff and I, and I think those kind of gains you can make is that with a new manager coming in if you change the tactical system in what you know might appear quite a subtle way but it's actually quite a significant thing in terms of scouting your opponents you will catch them out and you'll create opportunities that way so all, all those things bode well but let's see what happens when they play a more serious opposition and you know Solskjaer doing well might be a double-edged sword for, for Manchester United because I would not put, put it past the Glazers. If they get fan buy-in to Solskjaer, which they already have, and that's one of the reasons they appointed him 20 years after his, his uh, goal in the Champions League final and the story they can, they can sell about that, his popularity as, as an ex-Manchester United player. If he does enough, if, for example, he qualifies them for the Champions League or... Um, manages to beat PSG in the Champions League, which is not impossible given PSG's record in the knockout stages, or goes far in the FA Cup. And the Glazers see the opportunity to save a great deal of money uh, in giving Solskjaer the job and try, instead of trying to buy Pochettino out of Tottenham. Um, and controlling transfers, because while well, Solskjaer will want to have his say in transfers, um, if he is given the job on a permanent basis, he's far more likely to be amenable about someone else having primary control of a transfer policy than a Pochettino who has the offer from Madrid um, to come and is choosing uh, which job is more attractive. I don't think that's a long-term solution for Manchester United. I don't think Solskjaer, is, his track record in management is such that he is the guy capable of returning uh, Manchester United to the the level where they can compete for the Premier League title. So watch out for that, I would say to Manchester United fans. If he does too well, you might end up getting stuck with someone who the Glazers see as a um, cheap and easy solution who can keep them in the Champions League, keep the cash registers turning over, but not demand of them that they do the really substantial work that required to put them back on the same level as Manchester City, Liverpool, even these days, you know, to get on the same level as Tottenham. One thing that struck me, Duncan, um, about um, Solskjaer's introduction to, to United, um, which was not um, in any way, uh, I guess, uh, you know, unusual or um, unexpected, was his press conference. He said he's spoken to Sir Alex Ferguson. Now, for me, that was a touchstone because what I've been told and what I've 
firmly believe is that in negotiating Sir Alex Ferguson's retirement, the Glazers wanted more influence in the football department than they had had because Sir Alex Ferguson won everything. And therefore, in conceding um, to allow him to choose his successor, i.e. David Moyes, um, they, in effect, said, right, OK, we'll allow you this sort of, you know, gift, if you like, uh, in choosing your successor. And then absolutely failed to support him in his transfer dealings or anything that went on. And therefore... From that point forward, they tried to and have done, had more influence in the football department than perhaps managers would have liked. So when Solskjaer then turns up on day one and says, of course, I've spoken to the boss. He's been the most influential person in my life, etc., etc." I'm thinking, yeah, you ain't getting the job full time, mate. Absolutely not, because you're too tight with Sir Alex. And you've admitted it. And even if you've got a couple of nice results against Huddersfield and Cardiff, that's not going to happen. So um, I, I, I genuinely believe that um, Solskjaer made a mistake in admitting that. Whether or not that gains some credibility with Manchester United fans and, and anyone else, that's fine. But it's not going to get him credible, uh, credibility with Avram Glazer, who was in the director's box at Old Trafford for the win yesterday um, because they want to and feel that they should have more control. So um, I think uh, with regards to Solskjaer going forward, there is definitely a, 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 an argument to make that um, he will have to make a choice whether he continues to take advice and um Counsel from Sir Alex Ferguson, or whether he is his own man, and uh, says to Edward and the Glazers, "Okay, let's just um, well, let's find out as to exactly how this is going to go forward." So um, it's an interesting one going for uh, I think in the next four or five months, with regards to how Manchester United pans out. Um, I do believe they still um, want to appoint someone who is not. Well, they're going to Solskjaer to the manager position um, for some of the reasons I've just mentioned. But also, um, it will be difficult for them. It's, tr it's true that should Solskjaer do well, um, then it will make it somewhat more complicated. Shades of that. Roberto Di Matteo, Ian. Well, do you know what? Um, I did think about that, Johnny. And, of course, Di Matteo famously... Um, took off from, from Andre Villas-Boas and went on to win the Champions League for the first time in Chelsea's history. And um, while I don't really see um, Solskjaer doing that with Manchester United, it's not out with the bounds of possibility that he could. Just don't go up to the podium and whisper in Avram, Avram, uh, Avram Glazer's ear, look what I did, because that's what it all went wrong for um, Di Matteo. We did that to Roman uh, Rambic. <laughs> so um, take take some uh, solace from that. Uh, well, the good of Solskjaer. He needs to, uh, you know, just manage his expectations, I think.
I think I think it's very different from Di Matteo in that Di Matteo forced Abramovich to give him the job, and Abramovich was desperate to sack him at the first opportunity he had the following season. I think I honestly think if Solskjaer delivers um, and doesn't and he doesn't need to deliver anywhere near the level that Di Matteo did in his caretaker period, then the Glazers will seriously think about hiring him because, as we've said uh, many times in this podcast, the Glazers are about money. They're not about football, um, and if they can see a surer way to make an e- surer and easier way to make profit with Solskjaer in charge of the club, that will be very appealing to them. Um, and just one last thing on Solskjaer: there's a there's a very interesting article uh, published uh, by a Norwegian magazine, or republished by a Norwegian magazine called Josimar, which I, I would um, urge Manchester United fans to have a look at about. Um, uh, Solskjaer's transfer dealings um, at pre- in previous management positions, they, they detail um, his relationship with uh, an agent called Jim Solbakken, who was his own personal agent as a player and with whom he actually ran a, a player agency um, until uh, the Norwegian Federation forced him to sell his shares in the agency because he, would, uh, he ran the risk of signing players from an agency that he owned himself, which would be an obvious conflict of interest. And they, they point out that in his, um, it was written in 2014, this article uh, uh, originally, and they point out that 21 of the deals he'd made as Manchester United reserve manager, Molder manager, and then Cardiff City manager had been for um, players represented by Saul Bakken. And that three of the, the, the deals he made as soon as he came into Cardiff City were Saul Bakken players, three Norwegian um Two signed from Molda and one from, I think, PSV Eindhoven. And the three of them made just six Premier League um, appearances between them. And um, you know, people in Cardiff will say that those the, the money spent on those players, uh, when he had the opportunity coming in around this time of year uh, to try and save Cardiff from relegation, and they were outside the relegation when he took uh, area when he took over. Um, money wasted on them contributed to ultimately being relegated and uh, Solskjaer eventually losing his job um, halfway through the following season in the championship. So interesting to, to note and read and uh, think about if, if Solskjaer uh, manages to, to get a hold on some kind of transfer decision-making at Manchester United down the line. Okay, guys, well, before we move on to the quickfire round, uh, we have some transfer news. We are the Transfer Podcast, after all, and Duncan has some news relating to Manchester City. Yeah, it's a follow-up on a, on a story we broke um, several months ago um, that Brahim Diaz was likely to be lost to Manchester City um, at the end of his contract uh, because they, they'd failed to tie him down and he felt that he wasn't getting enough opportunities to play in the first team or develop in the first team. Um, and there's been, as, as we said at the time, a lot of interest in his services. Subsequently, he's now agreed personal terms with Real Madrid um, and will join them. And I think Manchester City have actually been quite lucky here because Diaz could go for essentially nothing uh, when his contract expires in the summer. Just... Um, uh, Madrid would be liable for FIFA training compensation of a few hundred thousand euros. But Madrid and the player want to make the deal happen uh, in January. Uh, Diaz wants to get out and he wants to play. Um, so he's pushing for the move to happen. And Madrid, from their point of view, want to be able to announce the transfer and have something uh, 
to show in the January window. So they've offered 10 million euros um, as an immediate transfer fee to City. City are asking for 20 million and it looks like it's going to get settled uh, halfway between them. Uh, it's not determined yet, but um, City are definitely going to get a reasonable chunk of money for a player who's extremely talented, who will probably be worth a lot more down the line. But they've dodged the bullet of the, you know, the Paul Pogba situation, which is having one of your top academy players poached by a leading European rival for essentially nothing. As ever, Duncan, with the news, uh, that is just, you know, that, that is quite incredible. You think about Brandia's experience and the time he's had on the pitch. Um, if they get 50 million euros, Duncan, then, you know, they've done well, I agree. But at the same time, they may have lost 50 million euros. 15? 50, 5-0. No, 15, no. 15. <laughs> no, 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 I'm saying, no, 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 they may have lost 50 million euros in the future. Ah, for, right, for, Sorry. The, for the For the player, if they treated, treated him properly and, and given them a chance. And they have spent a huge amount on him in terms of recruiting him. They 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 basically signed him as a 13-year-old um, under, under the covers. They weren't able to make it official, obviously, because you can't move between uh, European nations under the age of 16. Yeah. Um, gave him a, a huge contract um, from the age of 16 formally and paid his parents a large amount of money. His father's employed as a scout, I believe, by Manchester City. So there has been a substantial investment in the player already, um, but they'll probably get enough to cover that investment at least and make a small profit. My concern um, with regards to the player himself would be uh, the example of Virginia's Jr., who joined Real Madrid. Um, at the beginning of this season has failed to make an impact on many appearances and if Brad Diaz is the same then he may get caught up in that dreadful vortex of uh, the Real Madrid um, project, if you like, where success must come on a daily basis rather than being bred into or um, realising potential. So it'll be one to watch out for. It's time now for the legendary quickfire round and given we speedily approach the new year I'm going to be asking the boys for top footballing men's new year's resolution. We're going to start with you Duncan and Pep Guardiola. I think the resolution for Pep Guardiola at this stage and seeing what's happening with his team would have to be um, to rotate a bit more and to not work them quite as hard chasing uh, goals and points and other records um, at the back end of a season um, ahead of a World Cup um, and thinking about the season coming forward uh, because it's all very well uh, being the Centurions and, and uh, laying your claim to be the best Premier League team ever but ultimately what's more important is it setting records win in one season or winning back-to-back titles. Okay, Ian, um, Jurgen Klopp. I implore Herr Klopp to um, manage expectations in the city of Liverpool. To, Good luck with that. Um, yeah, indeed. Well, indeed, <laughs> indeed, Johnny. But this is my point. Um, you know, he has already um, a love affair 
with Liverpool fans, which you know is similar to the one which still sustains um, with uh, managers who have promised much and delivered very little. And so, uh, and Rafa Benitez is the, the kind of case in point. Um, his 2005 Champions League win being the highlight of his career. But I would just like him to, to, to be um, someone who is rational, who is um, fair and um, realistic regarding what's going on right now with Liverpool being top of the league and six points ahead because we've seen in the past the expectations of Liverpool fans being ramped up only to be uh, effectively rescinded and um, caught in the ashes of history. And so um, my favourites for the title are Liverpool right now. And so I think if Jurgen Klopp gets with the plan and um, manages its expectations, I think, then they could well be um, still there in May. And um, I think that'd be nice and refreshing for English football for Liverpool to to be back at the top of of the tree. Um, so my um, my next one line now, I'm saying Liverpool are going to win it. And if Jurgen re- responds properly and listens to our podcast as he always does, then that will be the case. Duncan, this is a man you know well, someone who needs perhaps a little New Year's cheer, someone who needs a bit cheering up, Jose Mourinho. I think there's there's probably a couple of New Year's resolutions um, I would recommend, respectfully recommend to Jose. One would be to pick your fights carefully. Um, sometimes you can fight with too many people at the same time, and and even he has been shown not to be able to win those those multiple conflicts. And the other one would be um, pick a a new assistant manager very carefully because I think uh, <laughs> I think the loss. The loss of Ray Faria and the replacement with, you know, an inexperienced combination of Kieran McKenna, Michael Michael Carrick, and um, Stefano Rapetti definitely had an effect um, this season. And uh, and all great managers are part of a great team. Um, and I think he needs to build another um, great team for wherever his uh, his next job is going to be. Okay, and finally, over to you, Ian, for uh, Big Sam Allardyce. There's only one thing that supersized Sam needs to do in 2019, and that is fire up his four Granada, fill it with petrol, get himself to Pune FC in India, where the legend that is Phil Brown has just been appointed head coach. And get himself a nice chana masala, bit of damn bread, maybe a couple of poppadoms, sit down, take stock, and think to himself, okay, if Phil's got a job, then surely I can get a job too. So that's my new resolution for, for Big Sam. Well, I'd asked you boys uh, what your resolutions are, but I think, Ian, we know yours. After all, eagle-eyed listeners will have noted that you were slumming it last week on Sky Sunday Supplement. So, Ian, I'm assuming legend. your New Year's resolution will not be succumbing to the flattery of being called a legend and being asked to appear on inferior podcasts. I, I totally agree with you on that one, Johnny. <laughs> um, as I said to the boys on the uh, Sunday Supplement, 
you do realise that I am actually, you know, in an inferior broadcasting situation. Yeah. So um, yeah. From now on, it's only only the Sons of Window podcast. Duncan, any resolutions? I never have any resolutions. I wouldn't be able to adhere to them, unfortunately. OK, and with that, I'm slamming this particular transfer window shut. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window official account, at Transfer Podcast. If you want to talk to us individually, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and more importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SG. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We should be back next Tuesday before 3pm, but keep an eye on our Twitter account for more information given the New Year period. Until next time, thanks for listening.